You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll bring you highlights from a conference about fair housing, where people from local governments as well as community advocates showed up to address the racial disparities in housing in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is more segregated now than it was in the 70s. Right? Like, let that sink in. More segregated now than it was 50 years ago. And I know it's hard to look at biases within your own department and figure out how to overcome those. But I think that if we're going to make real change in the housing world, and if we're really going to affect this crisis that is not exclusive to the Bay Area, but is really serious in the Bay Area, we're going to have to do things differently. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Last Friday, I went to a gathering of municipal administrators, nonprofit organizations, and community groups that convened to talk about the future of fair housing in California. And here's the message I heard. The Bay Area is not just unaffordable, it's segregated. And those disparities are the result of decades of explicitly and implicitly racist policies. Now, government workers and community advocates are going to try to implement new laws— and outmaneuver federal policy to undo the wrongs of the past. But they'll need to change the way they work with residents in order to do so. The session was convened at the Federal Reserve of San Francisco. It was co-organized by the Bay Area Regional Health Inequities Initiative. You'll hear it referred to as BARHI, and it's a coalition of local public health departments, and Public Advocates, a civil rights law firm. To set the tone, Will Dominey from Barhai gave an address that placed the focus on race and health and the responsibility on government. So over generations, various different communities have created a place of opportunity, of hope, of agency. We've created home here in the Bay Area. But that home has begun to slip through the fingers of so many of us here in the Bay Area. This is the other Bay Area, the one that's been characterized by housing discrimination, by segregation where those of us in government, or past generations of those of us in government, and I count myself amongst amongst those, have passed explicitly discriminatory policies, redlining, restrictive covenants, other things that have stripped wealth, health, and opportunity from neighborhoods of color, and restricted where people of color can live. This is the barrier that, along with New York, invented zoning and invented it to prescribe where Chinese businesses could could, could build. And I talk about this in the historic sense, and I think it's important to track that history, but it's not always, it's not only historic. This is also today. By some measures of segregation, the Bay Area is more segregated now than it was in the 70s, right? Like, let that sink in. More segregated now than it was 50 years ago. That that data comes from the Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley. We also know from their data that whites are the most racially segregated group in the region. So often when we talk about segregation, we talk about communities of color, and that's really important. And also, throughout the day, I want to also keep our focus squarely on exclusionary white communities and what needs to happen um, to break up um, discrimination in those places. So today, we see, like, where while um, explicitly discriminatory policies are no longer legal, we still see many implicitly discriminatory policies in the region. So a lot of our communities still have ostensibly race-neutral policies that exclude apartments, that exclude places uh, like smaller homes and smaller lots. And what does that do? 
What it does is like lock in those historic patterns and make sure that there are still parts of our region that are more segregated than they were 50 years ago. Studying our last regional housing needs assessment, uh, the plan for how we grow as a region, a study by the Haas Institute at Berkeley concluded that that plan actually exacerbated our fair housing issues and segregation by ass assigning very few units to jurisdictions that were disproportionately white. So this, this is the kind of, these are the kind of plans and policies that we need to very explicitly consider race in, think about these past histories, and then design strategies to change. And the continued existence of high-cost white en enclaves, I think this is the most disturbing part to me, is that the continued existence of high-cost white enclaves seem normal and natural to us, and that we've come to believe that neighborhood character isn't coded language for racism. So I'm here from Bar High, where we approach these issues from the lens of health outcomes. And perhaps in no other place is the data clearer than in two fundamental concepts. The first is that where we live matters for health. So when we talk to our epidemiologists and they look at the data, there's a 25-year difference in life expectancy by neighborhood in the Bay Area. Think about that, 25 years. I always get a little bit choked up like thinking about that statistic, because that's the difference between seeing your grandchild grow up or not, right? And the thing is, we have this like very long-term trajectory of unfair housing in the Bay Area, that other Bay Area that I'm describing. Um, but we're also in an acute moment of the housing crunch that's making those issues much more, much worse, um, and really driving some health impacts, especially for, for uh, residents of color. So I see actually a lot of our member health departments when I walked into the room, which was great. Um, and when I talk to our member health departments, I hear horrific stories about the way that the housing crunch is impacting people's health. So um, I remember working amidst a HIV AIDS program where because of displacement pressures, the workers there could not find our clients. They didn't know where they were because they had had to move absolutely no idea where they were when they were trying to deliver their medicine to them or check up on them. I talked to our parental and child health programs who are trying to help people have a healthy pregnancy and birth in their car, right? I talked to our asthma and lead programs who are trying to make sure that people have healthy homes to live in. And they can't do their job because the, the residents that they work with are so afraid of retaliation from their landlords that they might get kicked out that they can't actually advocate for a healthy home to live in. And I also talked to some of our, our departments who are on the fringes of the, or the outer edges of the region where increasingly people are being displaced too. I see a lot of Solano colleagues um, in the room. It's great to have you. Um, and folks who are working in places like Eastern Contra Costa or Solano County know how hard it is to try to keep people safe, keep people healthy, provide housing in places where there's very, very low foundation giving and public resources are really stretched. We really have our work cut out for us in those parts of the region. And as rents have shot up in the last couple decades, we've all been squeezed, but communities of color have been squeezed especially hard. Um, so in one UC Berkeley study, neighborhoods that saw an increase in rent by about a third in the past several decades were associated with about a third decrease in low-income households of color. But there weren't any changes that they, statistically significant changes in losses of low-income white households. So we're seeing the pressures that impact us all very disproportionately impacting communities of color. 
And what we know is that many black and Latinx families especially um, have been displaced to Eastern, Eastern Contra Costa, Solano County, or other places further from family, transit, jobs, community, organizing, cultural activities, public services, and it makes it a lot harder um, to, for families to thrive and be healthy and harder for public agencies to care for people. So you, with your work to advance fair housing, create that opportunity to live in a place of our choice. And we no longer live in a time, if we ever did, where we can look at those 25 years of difference in life expectancy and not understand, for those of us in government, not understand our role in creating some of those conditions that caused harm. And thinking about that role, also thinking about the role that we can take to transform those conditions as we move forward. That was Will Dominey from Bar High, a coalition of city health departments around the Bay Area. As part of looking ahead at how the state might tackle segregation, much of the conversation on Friday was about a state law, AB 686. It requires local governments to affirmatively further fair housing. Tyrone Buckley, who's with the State Department of Housing and Community Development, or HCD, talked about this a little bit. One of the great things about the bill is it gives uh, California a really strong definition of what it means to affirmatively further fair housing. Um, and that, that is to take meaningful actions um, in, in addition to combating discrimination. As Sam said, that's an explicit um, you know, reference to that. Um, overcoming patterns of segregation, fostering inclusive communities free from barriers that restrict access to opportunity based on protected characteristics. So what we see there is a mandate to go beyond discrimination, um, and that's going further to actually change patterns of segregation um, and address the barriers that are between protected classes and um, access to opportunity, really addressing those exclusionary communities. The law goes further to define meaningful actions for us. So meaningful actions are actions that are that taken together would address significant disparities in housing needs and in access to opportunity. Replace segregated living patterns with truly integrated and balanced living patterns. Transform racial, racially and ethnically concentrated areas of poverty into areas of opportunity and foster and maintain compliance with civil rights and fair housing laws. Um, so what I'd like to point out in that component is that it really highlights that um, not only do we need to be looking at access to opportunity in terms of opening up exclusionary communities, but also thinking about what we can do from a community development standpoint to um, build up communities that are struggling so that, this is, that it's not just about moving to opportunity, but creating opportunity in different communities. The legal and policy landscape around housing discrimination has been shifting for some time. But listening to the speakers, I got the sense that cities and counties in California are now facing more tangible accountability mechanisms. Because this bill, AB 686, while it was passed in 2018, set some deadlines for local governments to deliver plans for implementation. Here's Sam Tepperman Gelfand, managing attorney at the civil rights legal nonprofit Public Advocates, explaining how policies have changed. A key turning point for our conversation today is in 2015 when the Obama administration um, put out new rules around affirmatively furthering fair housing, specifically geared towards giving more information, requiring more study, and requiring concrete actions at the local level um, that was passed on to all cities, counties, public housing authorities, and states that get certain kinds of HUD money. Um, and 
this new law was really powerful. Um, we worked with uh, some people in the room on a campaign in San Mateo County um, implementing these new uh, 2015 requirements. Um, and this was an incredible opportunity for um, Black and Latino residents of San Mateo County to come together and make the case, and for the public agencies in that county to make the case and realize that the renters crisis, the crisis of displacement, was not just economic. This was a racial civil rights struggle because renters are disproportionately people of color in San Mateo County and in every jurisdiction that you come from. Um, and the, you know, the renter and housing crisis is one that's a civil rights, rights crisis, not just an economic crisis. Um, unfortunately, as I mentioned, uh, the elections in 2016 really uh, immediately undermined the great work that was happening in the Bay Area and all around the country under the federal rule. Um, this is the only statement from uh, Secretary Carson on housing before his appointment, calling affirmatively furthering social engineering and a socialist experiment. Um, not great news. Um, and this month, uh, the news got even worse. Uh, the federal government put out a proposed final rule that would repeal not only the, the 2015 requirements at the federal level, but also the even weaker, but you know, still meaningful requirements that existed before 2015. Now more hopeful in California. Um, in September of 2018, uh, the governor signed into law AB 686. Um, this was a law that um, was authored by Assemblymember Santiago from LA, um, championed by just dozens and dozens of community and civil rights groups around the state. Um, and at a basic level, this puts in for the first time an affirmatively furthering fair housing requirement in the state of California. Um, it also applies to each state agency individually. So we're excited to have conversations with the uh, transportation agencies, with the state agencies that regulate water and others, because fair housing is really about um, access to opportunity as well as decreasing segregation. Um, and all of these agencies have a role in neighborhood opportunity. Um, it can be enforced through a private right of action. Um, it explicitly calls out displacement uh, as a fair housing issue, which is implicit in the federal rule, but 686 makes that explicit. And the basic structure is twofold. There's a, an obligation that all programs and activities related to housing and community development are undertaken in a manner to affir affirmatively further fair housing, and no actions are taken inconsistently with that. Um, I want to point out that this really means race. Um, fair housing is about race. This means we have to be talking about race in all um, activities and programs and decisions related to housing and community development. Um, and there's new, uh, new provisions of the housing element requirement, which will be the focus of most of the day, um, that set up a fair housing assessment, uh, action planning, and specific requirements that sites identified for affordable housing affirmatively further fair housing. That was Sam Tepperman-Gelfant from Public Advocates talking about how California cities and counties will need to think about implementing fair housing law in California. While the law was passed back in 2018, it's now in the implementation phase, and local governments will have to show that they're actually doing what the law says. We'll hear more about that when we return. We'll also hear about efforts to make sure that residents are being included in the planning process. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. 
KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org slash donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other Public Press members who have made our work possible for 10 years. Let's go back to the conference on California's fair housing laws I went to last Friday, where municipal administrators and community groups met to hear about how government could dismantle exclusionary policies. The conversation around fair housing in California is timely not just because of the housing crisis, but also because laws like AB 686 are starting to have an impact now. You might have already picked up on the term housing element. This refers to the housing part of a city's general plan, a sort of blueprint for a city's future. By January 2021, cities need to have an assessment of fair housing in their housing elements and have a list of parcels available for residential development that also affirmatively furthers fair housing. The housing element is informed by something called the Regional Housing Needs Allocation. You'll hear that referred to as RENA. It sets benchmarks for how much housing cities are supposed to be producing and for how much of it should be market rate and how much below market rate. It's assessed every eight years. As you might have guessed, many cities and counties are not producing enough housing, especially affordable housing. In fact, the Bay Area falls far short of meeting that goal. Listen to what happened when Ada Chan, a regional planner with the Association of Bay Area Governments, misspoke and flipped the order of which goals the region is meeting. I just want to frame this a little bit in terms of to understand where we are as a region. When we met, when we zoned and met kind of our last housing element goals, right now we're halfway through the RENA cycle. We've produced over 100% of the affordable housing needed. We've produced, or the market rate housing, sorry. (laughs) That would be like some visionary dream, right? Like, oh my gosh, what did I... Right, so here are the real numbers. We, we've, we've produced 125% of the market rate units needed. We've produced less than 20% of the low-income units needed. That's low and very low. Actually, we've only produced 15% of the very low-income units needed, and we've only produced 25% of the moderate-income units needed. So the, the zoning portion of trying to get us to achieving affirmatively furthering fair housing is, a ch- is, is not the only solution. We have a lot of money coming down in terms of funding for permanent, um, permanent funding sources for affordable housing, like SB2. Um, and we also have a lot of money that has come down from the state to kind of work on these planning issues. And the reason it matters that we're not meeting our RENA goals is because RENA is one of the tools that may factor into how cities dismantle the legacy of housing discrimination. And those goals are going to increase, as Barbara Kautz pointed out. She's a partner at the law firm Goldfarb & Lippmann and advises public agencies on zoning and planning. What I consider, in my view, the key aspect of housing elements is to have enough land zoned in each community at adequate densities to accommodate jurisdictions, what's called the Regional Housing Needs Allocation finally called by practitioners the RENA. And just to um, terrify everybody, in the next, <laughs> in the next RENA cycle, uh, where the housing elements are going to be due at the end of, uh, at the end of 2022, 
it's expected that everybody's that the regions as a whole, Rena, the whole the number that's assigned to the entire region will at least double. And people should be aware that in the LA region, in the Skag region, it tripled. So the numbers are going to be much higher than the numbers that people needed to accommodate in the past. So given how the numbers are going to go up um, and <clears throat> the lower income requirement, you can expect that there's going to be a lot of upzoning required in the next in the next cycle. So how does um, AB 686 and housing elements work together in terms of this site identification requirement? Um, and just to repeat what Tyrone um, and Sam have said, the point here is to designate sites for affordable housing in areas of opportunity, replace the segregated living living patterns, and transform uh, racially and ethnically concentrated areas of property of poverty. Local governments can talk a big game about adopting plans in service of furthering fair housing, but as one group of speakers was there to point out, these plans have to be made with the communities that they're going to affect at the table. Tamika Bennett, Program Manager of Equitable Development at Urban Habitat, was one of the panelists addressing community outreach. There's been a forced mass exodus of thousands of families of color and immigrants that have happened just in this decade. Uh, in 2016, Urban Habitat put out a policy brief about the resegregation of the Bay Area. And in that policy brief, we cited that between 2000 and 2014, 22,000 black residents left our region. I just want that to sit for a second. 22,000 black residents. We lost them. They were pushed to the outskirts of the Bay Area and even further than that, some of them completely just removed out of California. Um, and that's just, that's just for black folks. We can go on and on for hours talking about the different races and classes and all the folks that we've lost. Um, but I believe if we're gonna talk about affirmatively furthering fair housing today, we have to start the conversation in that. So thank you, Sam, for doing that earlier. In 2017, um, I was still working in East Palo Alto, even though we had been displaced. Uh, I was the executive director of Youth United for Community Action. Shout out, Yuka. Um, and as part of that organization, we went through the assessment of fair housing process in San Mateo County. Um, it was an interesting time. A few of our organizations in East Palo Alto and the county um, had come together uh, in coalition with each other to be part of the county's process. And I kept thinking during the whole time that it's really interesting that it's called affirmatively furthering fair housing, because I felt that we were kind of not doing that in the process. The consultants that were hired by the city didn't represent us. They weren't too concerned about taking down our issues and the things that we were offering them during the public comment. They offered um, focus groups at times that were not convenient for the folks that we served. And this is with a sincere organizing effort happening um, with, and I don't know if they're in the building, but Faith in Action Bay Area. Oh, I'm sorry, Stuart's in the building, sorry. Uh, they did an incredibly wonderful job 
organizing the community and turning folks out to these focus groups at times that were not convenient. So folks, some folks were missing work. They were able to lobby the consultants to sometimes get the meetings to be put into the evening time. And it was just a beautiful show of community and folks making it out and making sure that their voices were heard and that they were represented. And it was really unfortunate to read the final assessment because it completely missed the mark on everything that folks had come out to say. Um, it, it lacked and omitted information about segregation, uh, disparities in access to opportunity, uh, the disproportionate housing needs, and it failed to actually like legitimately respond to the comments and suggestions that folks had given during the community particip um, participation process. And so, you know, upset, we ended up sending a letter to HUD, uh, outlining and underlining our concerns, saying that the insufficiency of this assessment should not be accepted by HUD because they were lacking and, and it needed to happen again. We wanted to do the process again. Um, I'm sure all you can guess what happens, you know, right? HUD accepted the assessment and so that's what's in place today. And so um, this process kind of left me thinking just, I mean, like, wow, I do believe that at its original intent, the affirmatively furthering fair housing process uh, was created to right the wrongs, right? To try and address um, decades long oppressive policies in the housing system. Uh, but without any real intention to work with communities and those affected by these policies, I don't believe that this process can serve or do what it says that it wants to do. I think the additions of AB 686 are exciting. Um, and I'm hopeful that it will bridge right community groups and local government in ways that hasn't happened before in planning you have to get intentional about outreach and not just outreach, but partnering with the communities that you serve. Uh, the work that I'm doing at Vallejo with really awesome community residents and leaders, I'm excited to see how AB 686 can play out in those places. I think the fact that um, 686 is calling for a plan to be put in place, right? a program, I'm sorry, a program in all of the housing elements, um, revisions, I think that's exciting. I'm excited to work with folks like Liat to think about what this program should look like. What should the assessment look like? I think um, local governments inviting community members into the space to actually talk about um, the barriers that they see, to name the opportunities they wanna see, to tell you what the disparities are is gonna be really important. Again, if you're not a low-income person who has been facing struggles in housing, you probably don't know what those things are. And the only way to make sure that they're truly reflected is to invite those folks, not just to be in the room, but to sit at the table, help, ask them to help you draft the surveys. They probably understand the questions that need to be there. They understand the people who need to be in the room. They have the connections, they have the relationships with key stakeholders who can bring folks that you would have never ever been able to reach into the room, right? If 686 is going to work, if it's actually going to further fair housing, we have to change the way that we've been doing things. 
and I know my time is running short, so I'll end um, with this. Um, when you look up the bill text for 686, it says that it wants to take meaningful actions to combat discrimination, overcome patterns of segregation, and foster inclusive communities free from barriers that restrict access to opportunity based on protected characteristics. This sounds amazing. Right? I mean, like, when I read it, I'm just like, that is dope. That is really great. But I think it's just also right now words on the website. I think it's up to the folks that are in this room and beyond this room to actually put this into action. I think unless you're partnering with folks who have been, again, bearing the brunt of these racist policies, nothing is going to change. And I know that's new, right, for local government to step outside of what it's been doing for hundreds of years and figure out a way to do things differently. And I know it's hard to look at biases within your own department and figure out how to overcome those. But I think that if we're going to make real change in the housing world and if we're really gonna affect this crisis that is not exclusive to the Bay Area but is really serious in the Bay Area, we're gonna have to do things differently. That was Tamika Bennett with Urban Habitat speaking to a gathering of local public administrators and community groups about the future of fair housing in California. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Host and reporter, Laura Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>